tonight um, we're going to delve a bit deeper into these uh, concentrated states that emerge from the mind becoming collected and unified and a spectrum of becoming collected and unified. And I'm not sure how far we will get into the process, but I, I'm, I'm going to, I have a lot of material to cover. And in doing this, it's not that you're supposed to like get all of this or understand what I mean fully, or maybe I won't do a good job of describing some piece of it or any of it for that matter. And uh, so uh, as uh, we've said a number of nights now, staying in the body, staying with the breath, and receiving the talk the way you're learning to receive the breath so that the information comes and what resonates will resonate and it will either be understood now or it will sort of be there somewhere waiting to be understood later. Uh, it, will, it will come back up in, in some way in your system. I've certainly found that to be true for myself in my own practice. And uh, remembering also the renunciation, the secondary renunciations of uh, renouncing judging and comparing, in particular some fixing, but tonight judging and comparing can come up. Uh, I, today I heard a wonderful uh, teaching story from a yogi who uh, was describing sitting in one of the instruction sits on this retreat and finding themselves irritated with the instructions because, in their opinion, the instructions were going on too long. And so there was a great deal of annoyance at that time. I think many of us have felt this uh, a number of times, maybe on retreats when, we're, when our mind's really steady already. We just want to take advantage of having teachers in the room and let that be part of steadying our mind and just practice. And yet there are other people who aren't feeling that at all, and it's easy to, to, to you know, uh, just get into our own feelings about this. And something really wonderful happened in this instance, because as the person was getting annoyed, they had this thought kind of out of nowhere, but because the mind was steady and collected, thinking, oh, this breath doesn't care. It, it's completely uh, 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 indifferent to whether the instructions are going or not going. It's, it's, not, it's not reacting to the instructions. The breath is just being the breath. And oh, could my mind be like that? Could I be like that? And just, just let loose of that. And that letting loose occurred, and there emerged a, a kind of dropping in. It's very hard for me to tell someone else's story, so, and I have very little time, so I'm not doing it a full justice. But that kind of a feeling. The point in why I tell the story is the mind was actually in a reactive state, and yet the wisdom factor was strong enough because the mind collected and unified that the yogi actually did something very skillful with the hindrance. The hindrance was the ally in this instance to a, a, a deeper resonance. Do you follow that? So we, uh, we, we want to be careful about uh, uh, falling into this judging, comparing, and fixing in all sorts of different ways. Not just when we hear information that we don't know or haven't heard before, we want to have had that experience, but to include that. 
So the title of the talk tonight is learning to uh, learning to uh, from learning. I'm sorry, from learning to aim attention to reaching the deepest absorption. Repeating from learning to aim attention to reaching the deepest absorption. The spectrum in this way. Little short poem by Yeats called Vacillations. My fiftieth year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book and empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. So, falling into a collected and unified mind with a, with a lot of piti, a lot of rapture, and it having that quality of, of ecstatic quality that, that seems to create a kind of altered capacity. We'll come to that in a more systematic way this evening. The two skills that we can enhance through practice in regards to collecting and unifying the mind are the first of those two jhana factors, that of aiming the mind or directing the mind to an object and sustaining attention on that object. This is a... Um, um, ordinary skill, but has uh, additional subtleties in the way we're learning to do it. Because as we've said before, we're not doing it uh, based on being highly stimulated by the object to which we're directing the mind, but we're doing it as a skill that's independent of, of conditions, independent of how stimulating the object is. This is a whole step deeper into this capacity of directing attention. So aiming and sustaining attention are different as an energetic experience from meditation practice as opposed to the kind of intellectual Theravada Buddhism. They, they represent a different energetic experience. There's different energy involved and each has a felt sense to it. And so with mindfulness, we develop uh, actually relatively quickly an ability to detect our aiming and to detect our sustaining, to do a kind of assessment of it, to learn to balance the two and learn to uh, uh, increase or decrease each one. And so I um, ask you to close your eyes for a moment. You don't have to sit up straight or anything. Just close your eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you to aim your attention to where you have been following the breath. And if some other thing, is, some other part of the breath experience in the body is so strong right now, then you can use that. Now, I'm going to ask you to aim more carefully, like really like you're threading a needle. 
that you're really aiming, you're going to land right in the middle of it, the heart of it. You're going to touch it solidly. And let that go. And now return to it, but in a more casual way. Just go to where you're following the breath. And let that go. So we can, we can increase the intensity of our aiming. And sometimes that's necessary because our mind's scattered or there's a, a kind of uh, a, a secondary experience that's really strong, our body's really hurting. So we have to be more firmly, use the, the willfulness, this determination, this resolve that Eugene uh, took us through last night in order to really like get with the object and not sort of be on the object. So there's a, there's a variation in there that we can each play with. Again, no judging or comparing. We're learning, learning, learning. It's this relaxed with this that we discover. And now closing your eyes again if they opened. And this time, go to the breath. Don't worry about how you get there, but really land on the breath. And to the degree that you know you have landed on the breath, that's the measuring. You know, you know, you know that you've really landed on the breath. And now I'm going to ask you to be um, uh, intense in sustaining this attention. So you really bring in intensity to it. Not, I'm not going to miss a single second of rubbing the attention on the breath, of sustaining it, keeping it right there. Uh, this is Upandita talking about rubbing. I'm not going to miss a second of it, not even a millisecond. Not tensing, but intense. And now, without changing the contact, just lessen the intensity. But you keep in the contact, but it's just less intense. And now lessen the intensity another step. And let all of that go. So we can, be, we can be more firm in making the contact. We can be more deliberate in landing in the heart or not so deliberate. It, it's an art. It's a dance with this. It's not, a, it's not a science. But there is skill, just like there's skill in dance. So uh, we, we learn to work these two to help us really gain a personal relationship with this aiming and sustaining. This is the basics. It's like playing scales on piano or anything like this, that you're learning some, that's a real art. There's, there's a degree of practicing the basics, and the basics are not less than the most subtle. They're, they're just as much as, and without some degree of this, some degree of confidence in ourselves, it's harder, because we get discouraged if it's not going well, or um, that we, uh, uh, we, get, we, we, uh, 
We believe that this is the level that we're capable of. We don't keep learning and experimenting, things like that. This, uh, the, this uh, resolve to uh, really connect and then the resolve to maintain that connection, analogy that I use, and I've used with some of you in, the, in our discussions, if you have a puppy dog, a brand new puppy dog, and it's full of life, and you're walking down a busy city street where uh, if the dog was off the leash, the dog could easily run into the road and get run over, and you've got the kind of leash where it can, uh, you, you have to hold it tight or it can, it, it'll give a little bit and give too far. You would hold on to that leash firmly uh, because you, and, and you'd let the dog roam, but there was a degree. So roam and come back. So it is holding, holding with this aiming and sustaining. The mind wavers, it goes off on a thought, that there's other body sensations come in. But there's this, uh, there's a, 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 a steadiness of holding just as I'm moving my hand. You're pulled by a thought. You're, you're pulled by a body sensation. But you, but you never are really leaving the center. Even though you move from the center in the, the momentary way, the intention is steady. There's a, there's a constancy of, of attention that's through. But it's not tight. It's not tight. It's relaxed. You're not afraid. You know how to keep the dog on the leash and out of the road. You've got confidence, but there's, there's a degree of alertness, of determination. Even more so, imagine a child, that you're holding this child's hand, and it's a five-year-old, and it loves to run around everywhere, the she or he, so it's a little girl, a little boy, and you're holding on this child's hand. You're certainly not going to let the child go and go run into the street. You're certainly not going to do that. Because you know, you know better, you know what's wise, and you care. So there's all this motivation. And so you're holding with a degree of, of firmness. But there's not a necessity in squeezing. So t- take your left hand and hold on to it with the right hand. And now move your left arm around. You can hold on, right? Now, stop for a moment and squeeze that left hand and start to squeeze with your right hand the left hand and start to move it around. See how unpleasant that is? That's what we can do with our aiming and sustaining if we're not careful. We can confuse firmness, this, this, uh, this resolve to stay with, with a kind of squeezing, contraction, and so forth. And that is the balance. We're finding the right degree of firmness where we stay relaxed rather than going into a contraction, a tension, and overbearing with this. And again, this seems, you know, all these days into the retreat, why am I reporting this again? Because it cannot be said too much. We can forget this in a moment. And ironically, we can forget it if we've had some sits where we've had a, a strong degree of collection, uh, collected and unified mind. We can want to get back there in that wanting to get back to what is a wholesome state, but the, the idea of grasping after it is not skillful. It's not wholesome to do that. We have said repeatedly, and I am saying again now before we go into more of the specifics of, these, uh, of the jhana factors and jhana states, that in this practice, 
the way we're doing it, it is the felt sense that is being cultivated. That means that it's not a thinking about uh, a, a, a sense of the mind being collected and unified. It's, it's not a concept. It is actually felt, so that the mind is felt directly as, uh, as, uh, as collected and unified. You can feel it just like holding on to that child's hand. You can actually feel the mind being what it is. And there is the felt sense does not involve much commentary, although at times we can get excited and uh, commentary will come in, but we're, we're collected unified enough that it will uh, pass on through uh, fairly quickly. So we can, through our skillfulness, uh, come into this felt sense, or we can stumble into it. And at first, mostly what we do maybe is stumble into the felt sense of, oh, yeah, my mind is somewhat collected right now. And then we get more and more skillful at doing it because we can learn to cultivate this. There is a spectrum in my experience of directing and, and uh, sustaining, of collecting and unifying the mind. There's a spectrum from it being more of a mental activity to be in more of this felt sense. So uh, uh, some people just have a lot of ability to control their mind. And they can really, uh, before they ever came in here, can just direct their mind to something and it will stay on it. They just can do that. It is like a mental exercise in, in, in the sense of doing that, not unlike... Uh, uh, you know, doing a, f a fine piece of art of some kind or some sort of a, a, a careful surgery or anything like that. The attention, it's a mental exercise that is, that is based on that mental exercising, not so much the felt sense of what it is like. At times in the tradition of Theravadan Buddhism, the, the more scholarly, the more academic the, uh, aspect of this was what was predominant. I have been told by scholars that at times meditation itself was seen as sort of déclassé, that it's not very important. It was the understanding that was what was most important. We are pointing to the direct experience and not just the understanding in that way. So how do we notice the felt experience? We feel it physically. We may feel it energetically. It, it does not feel heady. Oh, my mind is collected. It's not a heady, I know I'm concentrated in a kind of like the way you were like, yeah, I'm really ready now to, uh, to add up all these numbers. It's not got that kind of a feeling like being you know, focused on doing the numbers or, or solving a problem in the world. It's, it's not heady like that. It's more spontaneous feeling of knowing. And it is a, uh, uh, the felt sense is the felt sense of the capacity of mind and the characteristics of mind at that time. And we've talked about these, these uh, capacities of that it's the mind feels placeable on something, that it's steady, that it's malleable, that it can uh, it can be placed on anything in a way, and it will be able to stay with that object, whether it's an idea or a body sensation or emotion. 
and it's flexible. It's got it's got a kind of equanimity to it. It's equanimous. It's not disturbed. So these are like uh, capacities that that are showing up in this kind of uh, collecting and unifying. We can feel it directly, and likewise, the the mind itself has a, uh, a contentment, as we've said over and over again. It feels cooperative. It actually, the mind feels that way. That's part of the pleasure of it. It really feels cooperative. We feel a little bit of dropped in, or the mind feels quiet, or it feels cooperative. It feels available. It feels responsive as a direct experience. So we're watching the breath in this way, and uh, we, we can watch the breath as, uh, as a kind of phenomena. That is, the, the, the in and out, rising and falling. We're seeing the breath as a, as a phenomena occurring. That's ever-changing phenomena. That's a very uh, skillful way to be with the breath. A second way to be with the breath is what was coming up in the, the directions this morning where we notice the breath in terms of its component parts. The beginning of the inhale, or what I call the birth of the inhale, its duration and its cessation. We can count the breaths and know it that way. We're, we're noticing all the different details of the breath. Is it long? Is, it, is the inhale long or short? Is the exhale long or short? We feel the length of the breath. We feel the breath is shortness. We, whatever, whatever is, we're, we're in the details. We're in close in that way. And then the third way we watch the breath is as this, this kind of, of felt experience that we notice, oh, there's tingling. So if we're at the nostril, we notice tingling. Oh, there's pressure too. Oh, there's a kind of vibration here. Oh, there's, this, there's, a, there's a kind of stillness and a movement. There's like, my mind has a stillness and then there's this movement. We notice the felt experience of it. Equally valid, all, all three of these. And as we become more mindful of the breath, we, we, start, to, uh, we start to see that, uh, that we are gaining skills in this aiming and sustaining, that it may vary within a sit, from one sit to another, but nonetheless, we're getting used to this, we're getting accustomed to it. We're being able to do this in a relaxed state. There's not much sense grasping after this because it doesn't do what we want anyway. So we, we maybe even unconsciously drop much more into the practice mindset rather than this what I call resulting mindset. When with resulting, we're we're grasping after, we're trying to grab some experience. But if we give that up, if we surrender to this, to this oh, we're just practicing, we're relaxed, and we get more and more skillful at, at these two. And these are the only two of the five jhana factors that we can develop in this way. There's a little bit of inclining the mind that can help with the arising of the other three. But that's a very modest kind of thing. It's, it's not the same. Uh, it's like going to the gym with the aiming and sustaining. Or it's like practicing dance steps, or again, like the piano scales. We can really make a difference just by this uh, patient, persistent practice. Patient and persistent with resolve. 
Otherwise, without the resolve, we won't bother. But without the patience and persistence, we won't either. And then these other three, that is the rapture, the PT, the sukha, this, this kind of quiet, uh, sweet well-being feeling, and the ekagata, this kind of one-pointedness, these factors arise when we have the first two that, 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 are, that are either by just because we've done this enough and we've stumbled into it, or we're, 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 we have some degree of more skills in it. And then at some point, we do start to notice that, oh, there, there's, there's, a little, um, there's a little buzz or something. Uh, is, is, this, is this some of this PT? There's some little feeling, an electrical feeling or a, a kind of uh, uh, energetic feeling or a little high or something. Oh, I wonder if that's rapture. Don't wonder, just accept it as in the direction of rapture and move on. Oh, you know, my mind's got this lightness of feeling. There's a feeling of lightness. I feel very little effortless and it's really quiet. I wonder if that's some sukha. Don't wonder, just assume it's in that direction and keep going. Don't grab hold of naming so much. Just that, oh, this is in the direction of. Oh, well, there's a kind of a, uh, 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 of calmness that, that really does have a sense of equanimity about it. It's really, it's beyond tranquility. It's really like the mind feels buoyant in a certain way. It's got certain resilience feeling. This is really easy. And oh, I wonder if, if that is, is this ekagata. Don't wonder. Just move as though it were in that direction. You're moving in that direction. At times, as the mind gets more collected and unified, there will arise what is called the nimitta. N-I-M-I-T-T-A, nimitta. It is a, it's called the countersign. Countersign of what? Of the breath. So it will arise because the breath has gotten too subtle to really be an object anymore, and this countersign will arise. Or in my experience, it will also arise if the mind itself has gotten too subtle and it, it is, it is um, the, the breath is too coarse an object. And so this, this sign will arise. The sign, uh, traditionally this nimitta is in, in the, the text that's most often referenced, can come in the form of a light. There's like a light that appears and uh, it... Uh, it will uh, it'll be off somewhere or it, it can be flickering a bit and you ignore that until it becomes stable and moves more in front, like, like there with where the nose is and all of this. The, um, the people can get to looking for the nimitta and never find it because they're looking for it. And people can often go way, way into jhana and never have had the moment where the nimitta arose. At least this is my experience in working with yogis. It, the, and the nimitta can be very subtle in some way. So it's not something to become an object sought after, but it's something that if we're uh, teaching you the ins and outs of this collected and unifying the mind towards uh, samadhi, 
that you should know because it may happen to you, you'll go read about it, you'll go hear someone else refer to it. And so it's just this countersign that can arise when the mind reaches a degree of collection, being collected and unified. And it's just there. Again, in my experience, there can be other nimittas, and some teachers, some uh, uh, more classic teachers, uh, uh, will say that the nimitta can take other forms and not just this light form. And um, in my experience, uh, I, I have felt it as a kind of sound that will arise. Instead of light, it's a sound that's uh, a really lovely sound. I'll just leave it at that. Not hard to stay with at all. I, in, in my own experience, I've also felt it as a kind of energetic that is really steady, that, is, that has replaced the breath. It's like the breath has become energy itself. And that's what's there, and uh, but that would not be that would not be in the classic text that most referred to, and also f for myself, I have felt it as a kind of presence. The mind is just present. There's a presence that I can attune to, that I can't begin to describe what that is. It just. It's, I, I, presence isn't really the right word. I don't have a right word for it. The words, the words. Or, or it's always other than the word in that way. And I mention all of this because people get in, people can easily get into a narrow definition of what getting the, what, uh, what Samadhi feels like. And uh, they, they, they try to impose their concept. They're trying to direct their experience towards a particular experience that they've read about or heard in a talk or one of their friends described to them. I do not find that useful. I do not at all. It it's so varies with people. The mind is so vast, so subtle. It can go in so many different directions. Just being available. Having this intent, you know what you're interested in. You know what you're inviting. You know how to do the basics. You just keep doing that. And something arises and you're not sure what it is. Doesn't matter what it is. That's a name anyway. That's just a concept. No, I, this feels wholesome. You go with this experience. You just, you just go with it. You, you trust yourself to know in time. You may not know right away, but you will know in time. And if you've gone down a wrong path, you'll hit a dead end. You just walk back. It's just practice. The wrong paths are sometimes as valuable or more valuable than the path that's leading because we learn all of these things we would not know had we not gone down the wrong path. There's also, in the traditional teachings of samadhi, there's a use of all of these different meditation objects to, in, uh, to include these, what's called casinas, like these color cards where you where you uh, focus on a color and then that color appears in the mind, just like, like the, as a countersign, just like with the breath and the light. There's a number of these that you can look up and read about, um, but we're using the breath here in, in this way. Um, you may have had experiences where your mind spontaneously got collected and unified and you've had some of these things arise and didn't particularly notice it. Uh, and, and some of you may have at an earlier stage done candle gazing 
till you gaze, till when you close your eyes, you're still seeing the candle. It's that kind of thing. It's all ordinary. It's not any, there's no woo-woo to it and there's no magic. It's the mind's just, ex the mind is exercising its own capability. It's uh, the wholesome feeling and this capacity of directing attention, which is crucial in Vipassana, to be able to have the mind be at this level that we can direct attention. It so helps in gaining insight. So it's very wholesome what we're doing, but no magic to it in that sense, in my view. So in that regard, there's three levels, as we've said before, of concentration, of collecting unified mind, a momentary concentration, where you're here for maybe a second, or a, a breath and a half, or three breaths. You're here long enough to recognize, or maybe it's 10 breaths, but you're, it's momentary, it's not stable at all, and it's not so unified, but you see, in that moment, in terms of Vipassana, you can see the three characteristics and so forth. The momentary concentration, uh, some teachers say, is all that is, that's the minimal necessary for doing insight. Others say that more what we're doing, which is reaching the, the mind into a collected and unified state that is called access concentration or neighborhood concentration, which is the second level of concentration, that it is that level that really when Vipassana can easily happen, can skillfully happen. And again, there's varying degrees of intensity and stable of this access or neighborhood concentration. That's what we're working on. That's our goal, as I said the first night. So all of the instructions are, are pointing to this level. And then the third level is the deep absorptions, the so-called jhanas, these deep absorption states that are mind states. The jhana factors are, are, are just characteristics of mind that are arising. But, the, but a jhana is an, a, a mind state. It is a, it is a meditative state where the mind is absorbed in a particular way with particular characteristics. In the Theravada Buddhism, there's four mind states that are described. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and fourth jhana. In other traditions, there are other mind states that are described. There's different maps that are used. This is the map that, that we inherited in this tradition. When the mind becomes collected and unified, and a number of you have reported various experiences of this, without ever thinking about, oh, what are the jhana factors that are present? You, you've dropped into something, and you know you've dropped into it. You feel dropped in. There's a steadiness. There's a sense of well-being. There's a, a feeling of, that, of, of the mind's really bright. Or you go outside, and nature is so available. Like, it's, it's so fresh, and you've seen it for the first time ever. The mind's collected and unified. It's bright. It's pliable. It's receptive. It's, it's uh, the mind, the hindrances are sufficiently at bay that it, the mind itself is available for you to have regular experience in your life. Knowing this and being available for this kind of experience 
to me is as important as any cultivation of the jhana factors. And sometimes when we uh, introduce the jhana factors and tonight introducing the jhanas, it can lead people to just focusing on the jhana factors or I want to get first jhana. And, and it, uh, I had no interest in all of that for years because I had a lot of access to concentration and I like this this experience of mind-heart that came from being concentrated. I wasn't interested in trying to get somewhere. I, would, I, I knew how to be still well enough that, uh, that these things arose. So I was a long time before I ever turned to this. And yet I was practicing collecting and unifying the mind just by this aiming and sustaining. And that was all that was necessary. I did not have to do any of these other things. They would arise, and I didn't actually pay that much attention to them for years. I just wasn't that interested because this quality of living, of being alive, of being present in this way, that to me, that was the real thing. Being able to create little uh, uh, qualities of mind temporarily, that, that seemed like parlor tricks. It was a, a while before I understood that the degree of choice that it that practicing this in a systematic way gives us a degree of choice that is really worthwhile and particularly worthwhile, I'll say again, in terms of practicing insight, the kind of insight that allows us to see suffering as it is and see what is not suffering and to be able to choose not non-suffering over suffering. That's really worth doing all of this and that's why I think it's so important. So... Uh, you can also, when you've dropped into this, you just really feel good. A couple of you mentioned this. You just really feel good. There's an exhilaration. There's a, you could say, oh, that's the, there's PT present, and that's true. But that's so unimportant. It's the feeling good that's important. You can, you can feel love. You just so, your heart's so available. You've dropped in. You're really collected and unified. The hindrances are at bay, and you just feel love, and you just want to serve. Or everybody, you you see the beauty in everybody, and you're so touched by everybody's practice. You've dropped in. You've just dropped in. You don't you don't need to like try to conceptualize what is the experience itself. The conceptualization is a removal from the experience itself. Are you following me on this? Good, and. Uh, one of the things uh, I can remember happening repeatedly uh, is this feeling that everything's perfect just as it is. I was so amazed when that first happened because I don't think things are perfect as they are in my ego mind state. You know, I'm a fix-it type, so <laughs> I see all these opportunities for things to be better. But in that mind state, there's a perspective from which it all is perfect. It's really true. That's a perspective, but it's really true as, as that perspective. And so um, I, I can remember that having happened on retreat. And then I was standing in my kitchen, and my mind shifted. And I'd been out of retreat for weeks, and everything was perfect, just as it is. And there was such ease in everything being perfect, just as it is. And I still knew everything that needed to be done. I was not, I had not lost what needed to be done, but there I was in my daily life, standing in my kitchen, knowing that perspective, which is such a 
calming perspective and empowering actually towards doing what needs to be done. When these jhana factors, when we focus on the jhana factors and the jhana factors get balanced, so there's a, and what does balanced mean? You know, there's a thousand definitions. Balanced is conditioned. It's conditioned what's balanced right now for each of us. So when there's enough aiming and sustaining, that's right for this moment. And this moment is, is partially based on how your body's feeling. It's, it's uh, how, how much sleep you had. There's all of these different ways that determine how much. Uh, it's, that's why it's an art, not just a science of the mind. It's an art of the mind. So the balance factors matching the condition, and they're balanced with the conditions. And there, there, there's a degree arises of this kind of, of uh, this feeling of, rapture, this, this rapt attention, the mind's got, uh, there's a kind of charge there. It can be so small, you can't really feel it, you can only imply that it's there. And that's quite frequent. And the more you've done this, the less likely you're going to have big rapture because the mind loses interest in it, in my experience, and as I've been taught by other teachers. And, uh, and the sukha is there. There's a sense of well-being, this quiet well-being, this lightness of mind. And there's a sense of equanimity. And the mind's got a one-pointedness. That's a one-pointed that's steady in this way. That means that the, the, the jhana factors are present in such a way that there may arise. With, you don't have to know the jhana factors are balanced or not. You're just there practicing, and they have gotten balanced according to this map of how that happens. Then the, the first jhana arises, and it is a state of mind, not just a quality of the mind. I keep saying this over and over again because so often, uh, for the first few years of practice, meaning five to ten, <laughs> you, uh, it's, it's easy to Think because a strong jhana factor has arisen that you're in a jhana. So you may have a lot of rapture, but that does not mean that you're in a, in a, a, a state of jhana. It means there's a lot of rapture. And then how do I know? Why does it matter? Just keep practicing and let it come to us. We will know, we will know when, uh, when there, it, it's a... It's a state of mind. So the first jhana will arise. The first jhana is characterized by all five of these jhana factors being present. If we look at it that way, you, the first jhana can arise and you not look at the jhana factors and you're still in first jhana because the mind, you, you understand that? It's, so thank you for nodding your head. No, that helps me. We think that we've got to get all these five factors in balance. No, if we just keep relaxing and bringing attention, they will balance themselves. We may not even notice their imbalance. We may never have heard of the jhana factors. I got all of this happening to me over and over again, and I'd never heard of the jhana factors in my, uh, I was in a whole different tradition where there's not jhana factors in this way. The, it, it's, it's the practice of collecting and unifying, the staying with, this aiming and sustaining that brings them into balance. With that, whether we know they're there or not. 
Does that make more sense? So if you just if you just stay with the breath, stay with the breath, relax to tension that softens into this experience that really knows the breath, sooner or later this opens. It will open uh, sooner for some, uh, later for others, more frequently for some once it's opened, less frequently for others. There's varying degrees of intensity. Uh, there's uh, varying degrees of seclusion of mind. All of this. There, all of these things vary. We just practice. You don't have to spend all your time like you're uh, you know, fitting something together, that you're going to make these pieces fit together. That's, that's way too much conceptualizing. It pulls us away. Trust the mind-heart in this intention. Stay with, and it will unfold. Tomorrow you can challenge me on this if you want. <laughs> so, um, so then it's said, and I find this to be true, that what characterizes first jhana is a sense of seclusion. Seclusion. The mind feels secluded. Secluded from what? from the hindrances. And it's secluded a level beneath access concentration, neighborhood concentration, which is what we are aiming for here. But sometimes when we're aiming to collect that, we go further and we're in an absorption state. The minds really become absorbed. That means, so when we're getting around neighborhood or access concentration, we start to feel dropping in. And uh, all of you know what that feels like, a sense of dropped in. This is like dropped in at a whole nother level. Not better or worse, just another level of dropped inness. And that, so the mind is more secluded that in access concentration, this neighborhood concentration, the, the hindrances are at bay, but they may be present. And that's actually useful when we turn to Vipassana, because we want to study the hindrances. But in going towards samadhi, we're not wanting to study the hindrances. We're wanting to keep collecting and unifying the mind in this ever deeper way. Right? You see that. This is all very lawful. It's not, and it, it's so much material that we can get all about that, but like, trying to get this and that. But no, we're just dropping in deeper and deeper into an absorption state. And it's just an absorption state. It's not some extraordinary state. There are extraordinary states in this tradition, but I would not call the, the jhanas an extraordinary state in that way of something that's like so rare, like the... the like the most rare thing of all. It's, it's, not, it's more ordinary than that. It's like degree of difference between neighborhood concentration and first jhana. And a lot of people would call what I call neighborhood or access concentration, they say that is first jhana. So that's how varied the things are. In first jhana, the mind... The, the uh, applied thought is still present. Vitaka and vachara, you're still, you're still aiming and sustaining. So you're, st you're, you're maintaining this absorption. So there's an applied thought, so you, you, and you, you may not notice it because it's, it's going so strong on its own, but if it starts to waver, you can go, oh, I'm starting to waver. And so I need to do more rubbing. I need to apply more, like, like we did that exercise at the beginning. I need to be a little more intense in my staying with the breath because it's starting to waver. And it's, but it's all gentle. But we're, we're, we, we bring our mind back. We're, being, we're still in the play of it. 
what else do I want to say about this, the time I have here? I think that's enough. There are various levels of what is meant by this. And again, you're going in the direction of, am I, am I at a level of absorption? How do I know? I've really got to get to that level of absorption. Delusion, delusion, wanting mind, wanting mind. No, just go in the direction. Trust yourself. Trust the Dhamma. Just go in the direction. You can feel the direction. Use that as your basis, not arriving somewhere. Then uh, there arises a second jhana. Second jhana occurs because the mind has become more deeply concentrated still, such that you no longer need to do aiming and sustaining. It is, it is the mind has, is sustaining itself, so there's no more need to be aiming and sustaining. Uh, in my experience with yogis, sometimes the aiming drops away, but there's still a slight need for sustaining, so that you, you there's, and uh, you know, various people have, in the books about samadhi, they talk about this, these differences. This is not important, but just for you to know this, uh, so that you've heard it at some point in the retreat. So, because they are separate, and so uh, you can you you start to understand that separateness and practicing them. So when this arises, and you've had some experience with it, you'll know for yourself because you recognize these two so clearly. So the, the, the vachara and vataka are gone. You're not having to do anything anymore. And rapture is the primary experience. And it is energetic in nature. It's energetic. It, and it can come as a slight or minimal kind of rapture. And uh, this can be a kind of tingling, intense tingling, or a little electrical charge. Or your hair can, uh, uh, your your arm hair can stand up. Or um, one friend of mine repeatedly, his the hair in his head all stands up, just stands straight up. <laughs> and, um, it, that's a whole funny thing about that. And uh, I wish I had time to tell that story. It's really funny. Anyway, um, the, the second kind of rapture that it's declared in the classic text. And again, there's other maps for these levels of rapture. But in this map, there is um, what's called moment, momentary rapture, where there's a kind of, uh, it's like a lightning strike. There's, it's, uh, there's this, this uh, rather sharp feelings or rushes through the body of rapture. A third kind of rapture that's classically described is that it's like uh, it's uh, spontaneous? It's more like a flood through the body of, a, of this kind of feeling. A, a, a fourth kind is uh, this transported rapture, which is um, uh, closer to an ecstatic state, and uh, many ways to describe that. And the fifth is called all-pervading rapture, where the whole body is charged. It's said it's like a mountain cavern that's been filled with water. The whole body is just uh, immersed in this rapture state. And um, um, uh, the amount of intensity in each of these can change for us. And uh, the, sometimes that can it's, be careful about wanting rapture because sometimes rapture can be too much because our nervous system 
is really not, for various reasons, just not ready for that much intensity. Or, you know, we've had, we've, you know, we came here with, you know, we had a lot of emotional stress in our life, and then we got, it's just too much. We, it's just more than we want, so it cannot feel pleasant. It always ends in time, the rapture, so we never have to worry about, oh, this is never going to end if it's unpleasant. It will end. And likewise, no matter how pleasant it is, it will end. And really, we are happy about that because when rapture goes on too long, even though it's great, it ceases to be great because you just can't stand it anymore. <laughs> and I'm not joking about that. It's really true. And then, um, th- then as taking, as, uh, taking rapture as our object, taking rapture as our object, there emerges, uh, just because as we take it as our object, we feel the coarseness of rapture. And so there emerges or arises this third jhana, where sukha is what is predominant. And it's much more subtle. And therefore, when the mind, or I'm going to say mind-body, has gotten more and more subtle, the, 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 the rapture is just too much. And this sukha, this little subtle feeling of well-being, lightness and airy and uh, sweet and uh, non-roaring, it feels so delicious, so delicious. And we go, boy, this is it. And this is one I think that um, uh, just like some people can get uh, 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 having a PT arise and get uh, you know attached to it even as a jhana factor, if you can get attached to that because it feels like a special thing. Sukha is so sweet. We can go, I want to get back to here. I want to live here all the time. This is the best neighborhood I've ever been in. And so uh, we can watch that. It feels like a true coming home. It's the time that equanimity is more present. It's, equanimity's been there all along, this ekagata, but it's now really felt in a different way. And you've got this sweetness and this equanimity it, it, it's hard to imagine anything's going to be uh, any, any, any better than that. And uh, then as you take the, as you take, if you were doing this as meditation, you, uh, you take the sukha feeling as your object. You're just there with the arising experience. The mind itself becomes more subtle and chooses something that's still more subtle, more wholesome, more complete, and that is this one-pointed equanimity. And it just arises, it just arises on its own. There's a little inclining the mind that is sometimes taught where you pop up out of this a deep absorption and you direct a little bit and go back in, uh, but not necessary necessarily. It just will happen on its own, so at least to some people at some time. And then this, this is... This feels like the, the um, um, it's, it's something quite different because, I, at least in my experience of this, to call it pleasant or unpleasant is not accurate. It's on a different scale of well-being than based on that second foundation of mindfulness, Vedna, pleasant and unpleasant. It's, it's different than that. It, it is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just not the way you would characterize it, at least in my experience. And um, it is, uh, it is uh, uh, a state that where the mind, it's a chance of the mind getting purified and so forth, where we actually would do practice from 
Vipassana practice is somewhere in that range between access, concentration, and first jhana. Somewhere in there is where we would turn the mind to. We would not turn the mind from fourth jhana to practicing because it's too absorbed. And there's no, there's no hindrances. There's no suffering. There's nothing, to, there's nothing to work with to see the first noble truth or the second noble truth. It's, but it's a temporary uh, state of mind. And this is the thing that when I first started out, I didn't understand this. And the Buddha was so smart about this because first thing he learned was the jhanas from his first teachers. And he realized, no, that's not it because you always come out of it. And wherever you've been in this ecstatic, wonderful space, the same old you is back when you come out of it. It's not unlike taking drugs or something. When you come off the drug trip, there you are, neurotic, wanting, whatever it is that, you know, feeling sorry for yourself, same old person there, and there's no true transformation. There's no true liberation. So we are not, that's why we're going to this first jhana, or this right above the first jhana in that access concentration to see. Now, the thing that you do utilize in fourth jhana, you use it for going to what are called the arupa, jhanas or the uh, uh, immaterial jhanas, these, these, these jhanas that are so subtle. And the first of these uh, is, uh, is endless space. And I'm not going to go through the instructions tonight about how to do that. Uh, but uh, it's, um, you go, there's, there's, a, there's a way and it, it works. It works. Not, it's not something that easily happens and a lot of people don't ever experience it. And since this isn't liberation, it doesn't matter in that sense. Although there is, there's things that are learned. So, but it's, so there's endless space, and, that then, and the, then moving from endless space, you move to endless consciousness. And from endless, endless consciousness, endless, I mean vast, infinite consciousness, infinite, infinite space, infinite consciousness to, to nothingness, literally, nothingness. Hard to understand what that is. That'd be a whole evening's talk. And then neither the fourth of these uh, these arupa jhanas is neither perception nor non-perception. And again, uh, very subtle states. But that is, that is the map of, uh, of these absorptions um, with a, 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 a few subtle states being left out beyond this eighth jhana, but it's not in the regular map of this, uh, but some people refer to, just a full disclosure in terms of that. So that's the journey, and it all starts with aiming and sustaining and getting, getting better at it. If you, if you want to experience all these, if you're interested in seeing what's going to be available to you, just practice. Don't try to acquire, just practice. Just practice. When we try to acquire, as I said the first night, we lean into. We get ahead of ourselves. When we get ahead of ourselves, that means we're behind. Because now we've got to come back to where we are in order to be able to truly move. Because you can't move. If I say to the people on the right side of the room, it's time for you to go for walking, but you've got to get up from the left side of the room, you couldn't do it. You'd go, that's stupid. That's and yet we do this to ourselves. We try to practice from somewhere we're not. So we start where we are, 
and we start over. Likewise, you're no exception here on the left side of the room. If I say time for go walking, but get up from the right side of the room, how could you do that? You can only start where you are. I can only start where I am. And that's where we are in relation to general capabilities, but also capabilities this moment. This moment. So uh, when there's a restless mind, we're, we're practicing collecting and unifying around restless mind. That's as good a place to start as anywhere else. And it's particularly good because that's where we are. So we can move from there. We can't move from calm mind if we're in restless mind. Do you see? This is so simple and so obvious that sometimes people can't see what I mean. I mean, it is literally, we want, if we have restless mind, we want to start from restless mind. We don't have any other place to start from. If we're sleepy, that's where we have to, we practice the sleepy mind is practicing, collecting, and unifying. There's not any other mind to practice. Now, as we do that, oftentimes the sleepiness or the restlessness transforms itself. But it's, if we, if we fight it, we're likely to get more sleepy or more restless. You've all had this experience. You all know this already. I'm only telling you what you know and maybe put it in a slightly different language. So this is the journey. This is the invitation. Any point in the journey is a wholesome point. As we're moving towards, it's all wholesome. It will all benefit us, all of us in our, uh, in our insight practice. Any little degree of having uh, experience of the mind being just slightly more calm or slightly, uh, slightly more collected and slightly more unified, those are seeds. We're planting seeds. And over time, those seeds blossom. They blossom just like other things in your life that you've learned to do. Speaking a foreign language, uh, uh, playing a piano, or, 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 or learning how to do yoga really skillfully, learning how to teach movement. All of these things, we learn by just practicing them. We just practice. The, all of our views and opinions and all of that, they're just in the way. I will stop the little preaching part of this now <laughs> and ask us all to close our eyes for a moment. Mm. Once again, come to the breath. With the spaciousness of this open field of what's possible, Observe, be mindful of your aiming attention. Spacious mind observing this aiming of attention. Aiming at the breath. And now deliberately focus on the sustaining your attention. My, my voice is in the background. The foreground is sustaining attention on the breath. The spacious mind, this relaxed spacious mind, is sustaining attention on the breath.
so simple, yet so subtle, so simple, yet so empowering. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. A lot of material. I appreciate your your constancy of attention. And uh, I would, uh, if you're not going to come back for the nine o'clock sitting, which is really a good sitting to be at, this because that's way to end the evening. At least do a little walking for five minutes or something. Don't just take uh, what what happens in the talk and go to bed without it. Let it process first. Who knows? Maybe it'll make the sleep sweeter. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.